I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. I believe all foods are good foods, and all bodies are good bodies, and morality has absolutely no place in feeding our kids. And I also really, really want my kids to eat more vegetables and protein and all those traditionally, quote, healthy foods that I know their bodies need to feel and be nourished. Yes, nutrient-rich foods that are generally harder to learn how to like than more traditional kid foods, like pizza and nuggets and french fries and donuts and cheddar bunnies and all those super palatable, predictable foods that they gravitate towards when given the opportunity. Nobody tells you how hard the job of feeding our kids is going to be. It's so hard in so many ways. Functionally, stocking the fridge and pantry, and honestly, having enough money to buy food. And even if you have the money, literally getting the food. Getting to the store, unpacking the hall, using things before they expire, this is hard work. Then, of course, there's the getting your kids to eat the food you buy part of the job, which, as a mother of three, I know is one of the hardest parts. If you've been listening to the Full Bloom podcast for a while, you are probably familiar with the Ellen Satter Division of Responsibility in Feeding Models. The structural basics we covered in episode 5 and 62 with Jennifer Harris. For those that need a quick reminder, feeding roles are important and should remain consistent. Parents, you're in charge, we're in charge of the what, when, and where. Kids are in charge of the whether or not to eat and the how much. But the work of teaching our kids how to actually accept the foods we want them to eat, that can feel a little bit like a long, joyless slog. I've been there with the wasted asparagus that no one eats and the yucks and the ewes and can I have plain pasta again? And I totally get why so many of us feel... Dejected. <laughs> but my guest today, Danny Lebovitz of Kid Food Explorers, has a completely different mindset. Danny teaches grown-ups how to use play and steam activities to foster a love and appreciation for food in our kids by engaging them inside and outside of the kitchen. Danny is here with me for a two-part episode filled with truly practical, experiential guidance I know will reinvigorate whatever feeding relationships you've got going on in your lives. Here's part one of my adventure with Danny. Part of what I'm so excited about here is to like get kind of exploratory together because I love this book and We've talked a lot on the podcast, as you may be aware, of like lots of theories and sort of broad brushstroke guidance. And I feel like people that listen to the podcast have sort of a basic understanding of what we, quote, should try to be doing. But then I know as a parent 
this is so hard. Like whether you have a picky eater or just a regular kid who's not particularly adventurous or doesn't know that they too can be a food explorer, right? So I really want this conversation to be really practical and, you know, I'll leave the kind of, we can, you know, you're welcome to sort of share theories and best practices, of course, but I think what I love so much about the work that you're doing is that you do blend building food acceptance skills and eating competency with this idea that this is just part of STEAM, this is, and STEM, and like this type of, at least in New York City, you know, lots of schools are selling themselves as like, oh, our STEAM curriculum, you know, but then they're sort of talking out of two sides of their mouth, right? Like then they're talking about healthy eating and good foods and bad foods, which I know you and I see eye to eye on. So I want you to like imagine that there's lots of parents listening and maybe even educators listening and other clinicians that work with kids listening, dietitians. And as we talk and in, get into the nitty gritty of like how we can turn our kids into food explorers, like you say you we should do, what do you want our mindset to be as we kind of embark on this conversation? I want you to imagine that you are your child and see this conversation through their eyes. So what does that actually mean? That means inviting play and curiosity, wonder, discovery, and all about fun into whatever we talk about today. So instead of wearing your adult hat, whether it is a baseball cap or a beanie if it's cold where you are, I want you to put your food explorer hat on as we begin our search for delicious. I love that. And I'm ready with my hat. And as you know, I even brought my food that I'm a little scared of today. But the questions that I want to kind of ask you come right out of essentially what you say you can help people do, or you can help grownups help their kids with. And one of the things that you said was, or you asked this question, how do we turn frustration into fun and fascination? And I can tell you as a parent that identifies with frustration at mealtimes, I know I am not the only person here listening that prepares a meal and even thinks it's going to go well and then gets so many ews. I feel like we know enough at this point to be like, all right, it happens, you know, but how do we turn frustration, whether that's our frustration or even our kids' frustration that happens at the dinner table into fun and fascination? Like, what do you mean by that? Sure. So I'm actually going to back up just a little bit because I love the start of this conversation and kind of how you said, we're not going to focus on theory. We're going to focus on practice. And I feel very seen and heard because there are so many incredible social media dietitians will say that provide the information for parents on picky eating, talking about theory and where that comes from and practical applications to put that into practice to provide parents with the tools that they need. But my approach and perspective are a little bit different. My approach is a child-led, adult-facilitated approach. 
So that means that I am not looking at this conversation through how do I, as the parent, have this conversation, but we'll get there because that's part of this conversation, right? But thinking of how we address these frustrations and concerns from a child perspective, putting yourself in their shoes and helping their fears and their frustrations feel seen and heard. Because what we're trying to do here is not solve the problem of this meal, this off, this um, meal that's being served today or tomorrow. But what we are trying to do is really build a child who has autonomous choice, who feels confident and competent to eat on their own for years to come. And so, yes, we might count the wins at an individual table, an individual meal or snack, or, oh my gosh, they tried this. But what we are trying to do is really build that child up so that they can learn about their taste buds, learn how it feels to be around new foods, and really focusing on what the child wants and needs or what they are feeling before we can move forward and address those picky eating issues. So the theories, this everything I do is backed and based in evidence. But my approach is not from what the parent is really doing, even though that's part of this conversation. It's focusing on the child, how they perceive the situation and how we can meet them where they are to guide them on this journey of eating. So how do we turn frustration into fascination? Well, oftentimes it will begin before offering that food on the plate. So my first step, and and I'll be honest, sometimes the first step for me is on the plate, but it's not often accepted. What's an unusual food say that your kids did not accept the first time? Um, or the second time or third time? Salmon. Salmon. Okay. One still won't, but two of them do. And you know what? It could take, I think the average is like 15 to 22 if you're reading the studies. It could take upwards of 100 or it could be never. Exactly. (laughs) And and you know what? I have um, a resource that says like, it's a hedonic scale with smiley faces. And I had a parent email me and say like, can you take off the dislike part? And I said, sure, I'll modify it for you. And that's okay. Um, to always use positive words and framing about saying, I don't like, I don't dislike this food or I, I dislike this food, but also it's okay to dislike a food, but we should be able to talk about why and, Mm -hmm. and using adjectives. And I think we'll probably get to that in conversation later, but um, let's get to the salmon. So if you are offering salmon and that is the main thing for dinner and they're frustrated because they're hungry and they're seeing it for the first time on their plate. You know, think about something foreign to you. Like in other cultures, they have different foods that are accepted. And if it looks like a squirming worm on your plate, 
you are going to be less than thrilled that it is on your plate and won't eat it. But let's say, for example, before you offered salmon, you watched a show on the Discovery Channel about salmon migration and how it goes up the stream and, you know, watching bears catch the salmon and, oh, you can try salmon too, Mm. just like the bears. Or you took them to the fish market and you looked at all these different fish and you talked about the different fish or what you look for to make sure that your fish is fresh. Like you want glossy eyes instead of sunken in. And wow, look at all the colors on the skin. We don't typically eat the skin or it has to be descaled first. Do you want to touch the scales? Like you just made this boring salmon that you offered on the plate that might smell a little or taste a little fishy, that is an unusual flavor and or texture into something really cool, something really fascinating, something they may be interested in trying. Or you may have done all these things and they still have zero interest in tasting, but they have gone on that journey with you that you have guided them with. Yeah, I was just going to say, and even to your point, even if it doesn't uh, yield an acceptance of the food the first time, the 20th time or or ever, you have provided fun and fascination. And because even if you say, no, I don't really want to taste it, maybe they enjoyed watching the bear catch it. And they're, I, I love this because I mean, honestly, as a burnt out parent, I'm like, oh, these are great activities. <laughs> I didn't even think, you know, and so in the context of even just, oh, we got to put the screen on it to kill some time, like you can be priming even in those moments. And that's the thing, right? Okay, so I know you're a mom of three and I'm a mom of three. And my goal here is that it doesn't have to take a lot of time to turn frustration into fascination. We don't have a lot of time. Some of us are really limited on finances. Um, And so my goal is to, yes, I do offer like things that take a little more parental involvement or setup or time. But really what I want to encourage is that you can make everyday opportunities into teachable moments. So whether that's some screen time while you're preparing dinner and saying, hey, I'm making them for dinner. You don't have to eat it, but I want to show you a really cool video while I'm cooking. Or, hey, do you want to come in here with me and help me season? Again, you don't have to eat it, but um, this is what I'm preparing tonight in addition to X, Y, and Z that's accepted. But um, I'd really love for you to help me baste it or put in the oven or put the seasonings on it or whatever. So these are things that you might already be doing. And then you're inviting them into be part of the conversation, which makes it so much more interesting. Well, and you're, you're also kind of leading us into one of the other ones where you say, can we turn pressure into play? I think this is sort of what you're describing kind of naturally, like to pressure a child to try something or eat something. I remember when I was looking at schools before my oldest went to school, I was literally turned off by a school because they required a polite bite at lunch. And I was like, <gasps> you know, and I Who's got that it. polite for? Who is that polite? Right. I mean, you're, are you trying to work on subservience? Like, I'm confused, you know. And again, this was a loving school. And right. I don't think but they meant they're anything. also not building body autonomy because they're not allowing to their child to 
listen to the cues that are external to them and internalize them to make decisions for themselves. A hundred percent. And so that I suppose is like a candy coated pressure because it's something sweet and like kind and we're doing this together and the intentions are so nice. Right. Mm, Exactly. And then there's more, you know, I've seen more kind of coercive tactics taken with really smart, loving parents to pressure. And so when you say, can we turn pressure into play beyond like what you're describing? Because it is sort of playful to like touch the scales. Even if you say, you don't have to eat this, but like, do you want to touch the scales? Like I think about my curiosity around touching the placenta at birth. Like I was just curious. It was sort of you, weird. You got cool. to touch the placenta? On the third. Yes. I, <laughs> That's it was, lucky. It was cool. I mean, it was weird, but it's, it's so interesting. It to totally me. would have touched the placenta. It was cool. <laughs> right. And the first two times I remember I was like, we forgot it. I wanted to touch it, you know, and so the third, but yeah. Anyway, so other than like that, because that feels playful to me, right? What are other ways that we can turn our instincts to pressure? Like good parents pressure. Mm-hmm. How do we turn that into play? So I would take that let's continue with that example because I feel like it kind of will help us continue to paint this picture. So if, for example, my child is interested in coming in the kitchen, I can get him to come in. I would change my verbiage like in order to cook this salmon tonight, I need an expert masseuse or I need you to help massage. Let me show you how to massage. And I would, (laughs) you know, make it into something really silly. And really fun. Or, you know, like if it's a whole fish, you know, I would, you know, make it talk, you know, like, Hey, my, one of my middle daughter who actually likes to come in the kitchen, my oldest, um, Shiloh does not. So Elior just turned three, um, like two weeks ago, a week ago. And so I'd be like, Hey, Elior, come, you know, come play with me. Can you help get me ready for dinner? You know, which it, maybe it's a little creepy, but (laughs) that would totally relate to her. Like, you know, my, my other side of thing, like I, there might be some kids who are like this, just talk to me. There's no way I'm eating it. <laughs> but that's the thing we are putting, right? We started this conversation with getting into the mindset of play and curiosity and every child is different. So you have to kind of put your, your kid goggles on of what interests your kids. And I have three, my youngest just turned one two weeks ago. All my kids' birthdays are in November. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what resonates with one child would mortify another. But that's why we are kind of shifting and putting on those lenses of what would be fun and playful to each child. So, you know, if it were my five-year-old who wants to come in and help instead of making this food talk to her or asking, you know, her to name the fish that we are about to eat, (laughs) I might say, could you, she loves, she's very artistic, my, my, new five-year-old. So I might say, can you help me decorate this and make it look so beautiful for Mm -hmm. dinner? And she would love to come in and beautify this piece that's about to go in the oven. So if I have provided everything to her and kind of let her have some artistic freedom, that would totally speak to her idea of play. You just reminded me, sometimes I get kind of downtrodden because sometimes I just, I think it's very easy as a parent to just feel like you're failing all the time with this stuff. But I, we do I a think, lot of frozen meals and prepare yeah. food. No, I'm, I'm, I'm super pro those, but I'm, I'm remembering one of the more successful maneuvers 
it was before I even discovered you. I have one child that seems to have a interest in design, like his spatial creations are always really, he has a very Japanese aesthetic. Like there's something very on me, but he, whenever a couple times I've been able to get it together to get him to sort of create like the mise en place and like have him do the table and sort of prepare things. And, and that did give way to a better vibe at the table. Right. And I think in his case, he probably did accept more foods than he would have otherwise. But I've noticed that there are the kind of picky eaters and the kids that are struggling to accept new foods because of the newness and the sensory experience and maybe some even ARFID stuff going on. But then you have kids that are adventurous eaters, but they're trapped in their family dynamic or something, and they're being a little defiant or they're feeling, not even defiant, but just feeling like a sense of they need to be in control or they're having a, they're, they're needing to express some anger in that moment and they're doing it by rejecting food that they actually would accept if it were on their own terms. So I'm thinking about how that was really effective in bringing this particular child into the fold and making him feel really, I think, as you said, seen and heard and his talents were being honored and nurtured and it gave way to a really peaceful dinner, which is not always the case, right? So I think there's the dynamic, right? The family dynamic, which is kind of having nothing to do with the food, right? That can get played out in the food. And then you have more traditional picky eaters that are struggling more with the acceptance piece. Yes, totally. I have one of those. And you know, the quickest way to just solve that is don't give them that food and put it on your plate and then talk about how amazing it is, but like not directed at them because (laughs) that's the quickest way to get them to try something off of your plate. Right. This is the reverse psychology or to say, you're not allowed to have this. No, I'm just kidding. Or you don't (laughs) like this. So mommy's going to eat it. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I guess because I just made that distinction, For a picky eater, and I remember when, even when Jennifer Anderson was here, she said, you can define picky eating as like, if it's messing with the dynamic, like it's, it it counts, you know? So whether you have a capital P picky eater or lowercase p picky eater, if you perceive that your child's having a tough time accepting new foods, saying a lot, no a lot, only wanting nuggets, whatever, how do you turn a picky eater into a food detective? The first thing I want to say is if you are really concerned about how selective your child is, I think that it never hurts to talk to a professional. And we know a lot of pediatricians don't have a lot of training in nutrition, but they can easily make a referral to a dietitian, an occupational therapist, a speech language pathologist, a professional that really helps navigate and provide solutions to the uniqueness of your issues uh, or the issues that your child might have and help you discover how to help that child. So I don't want to downplay the idea that every child can have all their problems solved with their feeding challenges through play. But what I will say is that When you approach feeding from a playful and curious perspective, you have the opportunity to help your any child. So this could be one tool as part of a bigger 
approach to help your child by inviting this play, by making it pressure-free, by um, encouraging your child to become a, a food detective, a food explorer. And so by doing this, you are empowering the child to learn about and talk about their experience. And so a big piece of my work really focuses on identifying and understanding your own taste buds. And what that means is that children are encouraged to use their five senses. And sometimes it's only four senses because they are not ready to taste. And guess what that is? That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's not perfectly fine. It's amazing because everybody starts at a different level. So yeah. if your child is all, of, all about being a, a food explorer or a food detective and wants to do all the details in between, more power to to that child. If your child is, is very cautious and hesitant and uncomfortable and they're able to look and then maybe they feel courageous enough to feel, you meet them where they are and help them with the words they need to describe the experience. So I am a big supporter of teaching your children descriptive words or adjectives to help them identify and describe their experience. We find that a lot of children who have feeding challenges like AFRID or maybe they are neurodivergent, that if you can identify flavors or textures, sensory properties that are challenging for them, you can help offer them the foods that they are uncomfortable around and help them feel more comfortable simply by changing a sensory property or a flavor property or um, a smell. So one example I like to give is that my, and I think a big part of this piece of my work was inspired by my now five-year-old. She does not like soft or mushy textures. There, this became a common theme. She wouldn't eat eggs. She didn't like avocados, which I, I was okay with because that meant that I got more. But, you know, <laughs> you want your child to like avocados, perhaps, um, if that's something you offer in your home. She didn't like applesauce. She doesn't like bananas. And so when I could help her learn the different sensory properties of those foods, it feels soft. It feels wet. It feels mushy. It's squishy versus here's your french fries that you love so much they're crisp they're crunchy these are words that she learned that she liked it was like a light bulb moment oh you don't like soft mushy squishy what can we do to change that so mm. she will accept avocado on crispy crunchy toast i make something for her we call them crunchy eggs so when i make eggs i make them light and fluffy but what I do for her is I keep a little bit in the pan. I like spread them out thin and I overcook them to get that crusty yes. edge on that most people don't want to eat. And then I flip it and get the other crusty edge and we call them crunchy eggs. Uh -huh. And she will eat, you know, she could eat more than one egg at a sitting because I have manipulated it into a texture that she loves and appreciates. It wasn't the flavor. It was the texture that she couldn't get past. And I think if we are able to 
help our children become these food explorers, better articulate their likes and dislikes, help them learn more descriptive words and discuss their experience. And, and they can you can do that with hands-on tools. You can do that through books, or you can simply start by a conversation around the dinner table of describing mm-hmm. what you experience and having your child mirror that. Wherever you begin, it will help you garner a better understanding of where your children are, what their preferences are, and help them understand themselves. I I can't, I mean, I'm so obsessed with everything you're saying, and I feel like it hits me in so many different ways, including the part of me that's a therapist, that my whole professional obsession is talking about feelings as a way of identifying, right, who you are, your values, and being able to be in the world as authentically as possible, right, with yourself and with others. And and it's partly what I love about working in the eating disorder space, right, because conversations about food and how we feel about food and how it feels to engage with food, it's like a window into ourselves. I'm just exploding listening to you because first of all, you're giving me so many ideas for my own dinner table conversation. But what you're talking about is preventing a self-concept from developing where you're someone that doesn't like something because that can become almost like a entrenched ignorance that like actually can then be kind of a self-perpetuating Minefield, right? Like if you are someone that doesn't like, you know, fish, which is not the same thing as I I don't care for squishy fishy things. Like, but this it's almost like um it's the op it's a fixed mindset, right? And that gives gives way to other kind of problematic, rigid thought patterns, and also a sense of yourself as not a particularly open, adventurous person, and. That literally could be just because a grown-up didn't give you the right language, the opportunity. And the other thing that you're talking about that I'm just so connecting with is it's so respectful what you're describing. It is so, when you say child-led or child-centered, this is like essentially saying we are all different. You're going to use different words to describe this than I am. You're going to like mushy, squishy eggs. You're going to like fluffy eggs. You might like crispy, and that's fine. You might not like them at all, but let's get to know each other, a.k.a. let's get you to know yourself on this cellular, granular level that you're opening up so many people's minds right now. I, I can tell you that. You touched on something that I really... My work is so entwined with, and um, it reminded me something that I wrote just recently. I'm working on taking all of my education. I On my social media, I focus on one food every two to three weeks and kind of like really hone in on those foods and guiding parents through how to introduce it, how to pick, store, and eat, and familiarizing the ins and outs and um, working to get that content onto Um, a library-like blog so that it's easily referenceable. I do have this a lot of this content in my books, but it's not in as easily accessible space. And all of my activities are on social media, not on a blog. So I'm working towards that. 
but it reminded me something that I wrote and I, is it okay if I read this very briefly? Yes. Uh, I think it will really resonate with you. So one thing I, I use in my work is a wonder or a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. So trying new food is hard. The gift of wonder is based on a natural desire to learn about the world around you. Having a wonder mindset about food is all about fostering curiosity of food and wanting to continually explore with a desire to learn more. The discovery of the unknown and known continually questioning questioning or asking why is the perfect way to invite your kids to use a wonder mindset. Having a growth mindset about food is believing in your ability to learn to like different food and being open to explore them even if you decide they are not your favorite. Learning about and exploring new foods doesn't mean you like everything. In fact, identifying what you don't like is more important. When you discover a quality you do not like but continue to learn about a food or prepare it another way to taste test is what a growth mindset about food is all about. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think about how in my own kids' schools, they talk a lot about growth mindset. That's like it key in the kindergarten year and, and then all the way up. And I don't know that I've ever connected that growth mindset with food exploration, even though I feel like I've been trying to build eating competency skills with them. But that connection and the the wonder mindset and what you're talking about too is those things giving way to curiosity about people, cultures, the world. And so there's empathy skills in there, compassion, all of the good things. So I think many people and myself included do learn best through actual, right? Like play and experiential things. So I brought a food that I quote, hate. So I brought dark chocolate, which I think is funny because I noticed that I feel like as an adult, I'm supposed to like dark chocolate and I really don't. And I'm fine with it. Like I'm a milk chocolate, white chocolate girl. And I think my life would be fine if I never ate dark chocolate, but I, I use it because I don't care for it. And I don't know that my taste buds have gotten much of a chance to get to know it either. And so I think about how I feel about dark chocolate very well, maybe the way kids can feel about some of the foods that are like pretty typical for us. And so I'm hoping that you can help me kind of walk through these senses to become a food explorer with dark chocolate and that this could be a little template for parents listening to try out with their own kids and maybe even themselves. I love that you picked dark chocolate, actually, because I think we might find that a lot of your other listeners are like, that's crazy. That's so weird. But that is also maybe as parents, how we feel about our children who reject foods that they liked one day or, you know, they liked a different brand of something. You're like, what's going on here? So uh, I love that you picked something that I think a lot of people would really like themselves or relate to. Yeah. Let's pretend that you have never tried it. Okay. So she has here, um, actually it's a Ritter sports bar. (laughs) I also love that you picked a Ritter sports bar because I used to, I lived in Germany for four and a half years and that is like a big chocolate that is commonly consumed there. So tell us, um, 
uh, what the package says, because I think it's probably a high cacao amount. Well, so this is not as high as I was hoping for, because I'm truly intimidated by like those 70%, 90% ones that like my husband actually really likes. This is 50%, which is actually... That's great. Pretty like middle of the road, but it's darker than I am would ever choose. Like this will sit in my office for three years because I won't go to it because like, but maybe after this, I will, who knows? You just never know. That's true. Okay. So today we are exploring dark chocolate. So what I want you to do is take a look at that chocolate and place it in your hand. Okay. I have one little square here. What colors do you see? I see brown. Is it a light brown, a dark brown? The room I'm sitting in is darker than I would... It's a dark brown. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I heard that you said it was a square. Mm -hmm. Are the edges smooth or are they soft? The edges are... Well, the, the corners are a little bit rounded. And the... Yeah, a little bit rounded. Does it remind you of anything? Yeah, it reminds me of a key on a computer keyboard. Oh, like not, and the kind that I used to really like to the ones that had the nice like kind of not tap, Feel. but yeah, that like my laptop the doesn't really yeah the laptop doesn't the tension that like like a, almost like a word processor vibe. Yeah, that's such a a great image that you just gave all of us here. Okay. Do you see anything about spices? Were there any spices added like cinnamon or does it say how it was prepared on the packaging? No, no spices. Oh, no, nothing. Have you tried this specific brand or of chocolate before and this amount of cacao? Not this amount of cacao, but I have had Ritter Sport before. Okay. And is it similar to anything else you have eaten? So does it look similar to another Ritter Sports bar? Yes, it's that same, like, I don't know, for those that know it, right? It's like that square with little squares, and yeah, it looks the same. It's just far darker than I would have chosen. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. So um, I want you to feel around it, and what do you feel in your hands? It feels a little, it's both smooth it's almost like a, there's a slight chalky, waxy vibe. Great descriptive words. Yeah. I really sort of relate to that feeling that you're telling me about. Do you feel comfortable putting it to just your lips and just rubbing your lips with that texture? Mm-hmm. Anything it, different? Well, the interesting thing is that it's it's getting, it's melting a little because I'm touching it. And so it feels like I'm putting on lipstick. (laughs) Okay. Oh, I love that. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to take a big whiff, take a big smell. What does it smell like? Chocolate. (laughs) Smells like chocolate. Does it smell sweet? Does it smell rich? It does smell sweet. Uh, it does, it smells sweet and chocolatey. (laughs) Um, it's funny. Maybe. Yeah. I guess rich rich. means creamy, flavorful, heavy. There's other words to describe rich that might kind of 
resonate with it, you. As you say it, yes, it smells like something that is, it has dimension to it, like that complex, cr- maybe? complex. And like, I wouldn't use the word creamy to describe a smell, but okay. I do sort of, I'm smelling whatever I'm smelling has like, yeah, it's got kind of like a thick dimension to it. Multiple flavors, textures, or smells. Very good. Okay. Excellent. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you hear anything as you run your fingers over it? Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. What do you hear? Um, gosh, you know, I'm noticing that it's hard to come up with words. Like, do you hear like, that waxy yes. kind of feeling? Is it squeaky? It's not squeaky. It's like, oh my God, what's the word to describe when there's like a little tension? Like, oh my gosh. It's like, if you're running your finger, wow. What, it's, that's the hard part. Like coming up with the words. That's why your guides, you need those thesauruses. Yeah. It's not squeaky. It's like, um, yeah, it's like, okay. And now it's getting, it feels like now I'm touching lipstick. Like it, now it's because yeah, it's getting, it's melting. It's melting on your hand. It, and you know what? It could sound melty. It's okay to make up yeah. your own words when you are learning new words or ways to describe things because this is new. So you could say it is lipstick-like mm-hmm. or lipstick-y to describe. And that's something you can tell your kids because they can add a E-Y or a Y to whatever word. Or they could add a like to whatever words and encourage that because they're learning to talk to you and tell you about what they're experiencing. Okay. Do you feel comfortable tasting it? I do. So don't put the whole thing in your mouth. Okay. Um, Take a bite. Notice how it feels in your teeth. Notice what you experience as you bite down. So beyond just the flavor, we want to know what the texture feels like because we know that you have already self-proclaimed disliking dark chocolate, (laughs) but is it the texture that's different that is also contributing to this dislike or is it just the flavor? And we'll get into the flavor in just a moment, but tell us about this experience of what it feels like as you took a bite. Is it pleasurable? What, what does it feel like when you bite down on it? Well, it's interesting. So this is actually next time I'll do this with like a 70% because this is sweeter than almost like the sweetness is making it more tolerable, but that's not even it. I notice when I bit into it, what I'm appreciating about it, even though I don't love the flavor, is that there's a creaminess to it. So I like the creaminess and it doesn't taste sort of waxy or it doesn't, I don't experience it as like waxy. Like when I think about the dark chocolate, I really don't like. It's kind of cold and waxy. And when I bite into it, it's just like joyless. Whereas this, like, are you still getting that creamy mouth feel, that melty experience that you expect when you are enjoying a piece of chocolate? Yeah. Good. Yeah. So even just that alone is is a breakthrough, right? Yeah. uh, You know now part of the reason why you dislike the really dark chocolate is because the expectation of the texture or the experience, the mouthfeel is just not there for you. And so it's a letdown. And we didn't even get to the flavor yet, which 
dark chocolate can be quite bitter, right? right. It's, a, it's a whole different palate than uh, milk chocolate, which is sweet and, you know, uh, creamy and creamy. And, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So excellent. So do you want to talk a little bit about the flavor and yeah. the descriptive words you come up with? Okay, I'm going to, I put the rest in because okay. I'm actually enjoying it more than I expected. So that's um, one thing I like to say and do too is um, when you taste test, I like to do it in the dark taste test or a blindfolded mm, taste test. Oh my God, that's fun. Because you're not eating with your eyes. You are eating with all the rest of your senses. And the problem when we eat just with our eyes is our eyes give us so many expectations of the experience that we aren't able to really feel the sensations also associated. Like when you put that in your mouth, did you hear your mouth salivate and the swishy sound of your saliva in your ears or the, the soft, quiet bite that you had biting into it versus that kind of crunch, waxy feel of the really dark chocolate? You know, these are little subtle nuances and experiences that could really turn somebody off or turn somebody on to that particular food. I think what my biggest takeaway right now, it's amazing. Like I've always assumed what I don't like about dark chocolate is the bitterness. And I think it's true. I don't think my palate is, I haven't practiced either, you know, like, cause I just avoid it. And again, you know, life without dark chocolate, if you don't like it, it's its not such a hard thing to avoid. It's not like a, you know, whatever. But I think what that exercise clued me into is that it's a textural thing that I'm actually responding to first. And I think that that takeaway is huge because I think even just as a mindset for parents, this is so multidimensional and we can so easily get into accepted foods not accepted foods, like foods I like, foods I don't like. And it's like, but why? And I barely had the vocabulary to describe it. And it's partly why I love your glossary or thesaurus of all these words, because I use it with adult patients who are, you know, for one reason or another with me exploring food acceptance skills, like in their therapy. But sometimes people just don't know they need help with language to describe how something feels, whether that's on their tongue or how they feel, right? Like feelings wheels are, are so pivotal here too. So to think, what is it exactly that our child likes or doesn't like? And do they know? Do they know what they like and why they like it? And same with and how to help them and facilitate that conversation. Like they freak out because they love the Tyson chicken nuggets, but you got the Trader Joe's chicken nuggets and their world has ended. Well, what's the difference? They're not just chicken nuggets. Is it, well, this one is crunchier. The way they season it is better. The texture of the meat as they take a bite, this one has actual chicken meat and that's not accepted, but this one had ground chicken meat that makes it a softer bite um, between their teeth or how they hear it in their ears. It's really loud. Eating and foods are so complex. No two things are the same. Guess what? You might not have cooked it as long as you cooked it the last time. So it's not quite as crunchy or you forgot to flip it. So it's crunchy on one side and it changes the experience. And I think there's, there's something that I do want to say is that it is okay to not like different foods, but A, 
you should be able to talk about what it is you'd like or don't like about it. But here's the other piece. And my girls do this so well. It's like such a proud mama moment when I hear her say this. We use kind words to talk about food. We can say we don't like something, but we can also add the word yet, which is an invitation to try it again. We can say, this is not my favorite. I am still exploring it. Mm -hmm. One thing we never do is say yuck or ew because it is not a kind way to talk about food for two reasons. One, just because the here and now it's not your favorite doesn't mean you won't like it another time. And so we get this idea in our head that we just like something when we tell ourselves that. So we don't want to just say, ew, I don't like it. Yuck. When you say, I don't like it because X, Y, and Z, it leaves an open invitation to change the way you are offering it, make it more crunchy or whatever. And the other thing is there might be other people around you that really love that food and it is unkind. And I'll use this like common expression to yuck someone else's yum. So when we are talking about our personal likes and dislikes, invite your kids to use kind words to talk about food. It's not my favorite. I'm still exploring it so that we don't hurt anybody else's feelings or alter their personal interpretation and being conscious to respect and compassionate to what other people love. Yeah. I mean, I love it. It's a really practical way to also help children build theory of mind as they're developing and to introduce this idea without formally saying it of somebody's unique subjective experience. Exactly. And to make space for a child to not like something, I I think that's a really important point. This is not to say your child, you know, must like everything or shouldn't dislike things and the goal is to get them to dislike, you know, fewer things. I think it's what you're saying to um, hold ourselves and our children to have the higher expectations, not for eating more or accepting more, but getting to know each other more and ourselves included. And so this exercise that you led me through today, I think it's a cool one for parents to do because that experiential stuff really does give way to better practice. Thank you for listening to the Full Bloom Podcast. For more body-positive nurturing content and conversation, you can find me on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. Special thanks to Davis Lloyd, Christina Regal, and all of you who helped support the Full Bloom Project by rating, reviewing, and sharing these episodes. See you next time.